The reading is from Matthew chapter 5, continuing, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, page 968 in the Church Bibles. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hesse, for reading that for us. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, the Bible. Thank you that you speak to us. Uh, and we pray that you would bless us now. Help us to understand these Beatitudes and change our lives, we pray, through them. Amen. Well, we've been thinking about how do we approach God uh, and we've been thinking about that as we've looked at these Beatitudes. Uh, there are eight of them, and we've been saying they don't describe eight different groups of people. They describe one group of people, uh, Christians. And that the first four help us to understand uh, the answer to this question. How do we approach God? We've said it is the most important thing that we could possibly know. How to approach the living God, the God who made us all. How do we approach him? And the first four Beatitudes help us with that. And now we come on to the second four. So we're on to uh, numbers five and six. We're doing them in pairs. And so we're into the second half of the Beatitudes. And what we see is that the, the feel of it just changes slightly. We go from how do we approach God, and then we come to how we're to live for God, how our lives are to be changed. But it's very important that we see the connection between the two halves of the Beatitudes, the first four and the second four. It's the first four about how we are to approach God and the second four about how we're to live, but they're connected. You see, the second four, how we're to live, are the outworking of the first four. If you're going to approach God in the way of the first four, it will inevitably lead to the changes of the second four. It will have to change our lives. You see, approaching God changes us, must change us, change our lives. Coming to God is not like having a loft conversion. Uh, loft conversion, if you've had one of them, changes a bit of your house. I mean, it causes incredible disruption, I would imagine, but it changes some of your house. But a lot of the rest of your life stays the same. 
Coming to God is not like that, where he just impacts part of you, part of your life. Coming to God is more like moving to a new house in a new country, where everything changes and things are very, very different. Approaching God in the way that Jesus says in the first four Beatitudes will lead to life change. And we're going to see two things today that will change as a result. They are things which actually, those first four Beatitudes gives us the, uh, the power to do these things. Things which maybe we weren't able to do before. The first of them that we're going to look at is being merciful. This is about how we relate to other people. Now, what does it mean to be merciful? To be merciful is to be moved by the suffering of others. It is to see the misery and grief of others and be moved to help. Compassion for those in need. Now, I want you to see um, how that flows out of the first four Beatitudes. What are the first four? Well, the first four are that we are to be poor in spirit. And if we are poor in spirit, if we're mourning for our sin, uh, no, actually, you go back to that. If we're poor in spirit, if we're mourning for our sin, if we're meek, that is, we are not on the throne of our lives, but we've come off the throne of our lives, if we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that describes someone who knows their need, knows their spiritual need, knows that before God they are bankrupt, that there is nothing in and of themselves that they can bring before God to boast of, and therefore they see real need in themselves. If that is true of you and me then when we see others in need and suffering, whatever that suffering may be, our hearts will go out to them. As a fellow sufferer, a fellow person who is in need, it may not be in the need that we see, but as a fellow sufferer, we will go, yes, I, I have empathy with you, and I want to help you, I want to, uh, to do something. And we won't approach those sufferings and needs uh, as those who are proud or self-righteous. It's possible to do that, isn't it? Maybe we've done that in the past where for some sufferings that we see, we just assume that, well, they probably made unwise choices or maybe they can, couldn't get their act together. Well, as a Christian, we don't look at those who are suffering in that way because we know we've made bad choices. We know we couldn't get our act together. And so there's great empathy for those who, whose lives have fallen apart, even if it was clearly their fault. Because we know we're no better. So the result is incredible empathy with those in need, with those who are suffering. Whether that is suffering of those in other areas of the world, things we see on the news, or if it's things very close to home, uh, the Christian will have been merciful, compassionate. But there's one particular kind of being merciful uh, that is emphasised over and over again in the Bible and in the New Testament, and that is forgiveness. And this is a way that we can shine out in the world. It's been said in our culture is one where people are incredibly tolerant 
and yet incredibly unforgiving. And I think we see that a lot uh, around us. We see a lack of forgiveness in many areas. In fact, sometimes being unforgiving is almost held up as being honourable. Have you noticed that? Uh, it's, been, it's not been uncommon in recent months when, with Partygate and that kind of thing. For, uh, when people are speaking about Boris Johnson, MPs speaking about Boris Johnson, even in the House of Commons, sometimes you might even hear an MP say, I can't forgive him. And others cheer. Unforgiveness there is being held up as being almost a virtue, isn't it? And maybe some of us have similar thoughts in our hearts, maybe about Boris Johnson, but maybe about other people, that there are some you would say, I can't forgive them. Maybe you even take pride in that. And that when you get to the Lord's Prayer and you're going through it, you're praying through it. I know there have been uh, people who've said, "I, I can't pray the line as we forgive those who sin against us. I wonder if there are some here who maybe you have a problem with that line, saying that line in the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus is saying the first outflowing of approaching God is to be merciful. It is not an optional extra for Christians. To illustrate this, I mean, Jesus tells a story, doesn't he? Maybe this story springs to your mind at that moment. It, it is a story of an unmerciful servant. It's in Matthew chapter 18, verse, uh, uh, and, but don't worry about looking it up now. Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. Uh, he speaks of a servant who owed his master a massive debt, a huge debt, uh, and the master was going to throw him, uh, sell his family because he couldn't pay back this debt. The, the man pleads with his master and the master cancels the debt. That servant then meets a fellow, uh, uh, someone else who owes him an amount of money, but a smaller amount. And that servant doesn't cancel the debt of the one who owes him money, but has him thrown in prison. The master then hears about this and calls the servant in and says this, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then this is what Jesus says. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus is saying forgiveness is not optional. We've got to forgive. Now, is Jesus saying in this beatitude that forgiving others, being merciful, earns our forgiveness from God? It sounds like it, doesn't it? Because he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But it's not actually saying you earn mercy from God by being merciful to others. No, rather, it is that those who have come to God in the way described in the Beatitudes will inevitably be merciful. 
And Jesus in that parable, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, is helping us to see how we can be merciful. And it's very similar to the, the start of the Sermon on the Mount in a way. How are we to do it? How should that servant have cancelled the debt of the person who owed him money? It is by remembering how much his debt has been cancelled, that it was a far bigger debt. How much it cost his master to cancel his debt. And so too for us. If we're struggling to forgive others, we've got to go back to how much we've been forgiven. It is going through the start of the Sermon on the Mount again, those first four Beatitudes, because we've got to remember, actually, before I think about others, I've got to remember how I am before God, that I'm poor before God, poor in spirit, that I come with nothing, that I mourn, I mourn for my sin, and it is a great debt, that I'm meek, I come off the throne of my life, that I hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I've got to remember what it cost God to achieve righteousness for me, that it took Jesus going to the cross, And we dwell on the cross, thinking what it cost, and thinking the attitude that Jesus had towards us, and thinking how out of sync it is for us not to forgive others. After all, if I don't forgive someone, I'm probably saying uh, that I'm better than them, that uh, whatever it is they've done, I've never done, and furthermore, I would never do it. But do you see, Jesus could have said the same thing of you and me. He could rightly have said, well, I would never have done what you've done. I never did it. I wouldn't have thought of doing it. Yes, he was tempted in every way, but without sin, he could say, I never did what you did. And he could say to you and me, I won't forgive that. But he didn't. Gloriously, he went to the cross to forgive us. He paid the price to wipe our debt clean. And knowing that forgiveness, that will fuel us to go and be merciful to others. Now, this isn't to say it's easy to forgive others. In fact, it's impossible without God's help. But he can bring us to a place Uh, to do what we could never do on our own. Through knowing his forgiveness, we can pour it out to others. There's an example of this. Um, I've been reading uh, this book. It's a good book called Counting the Cost. It's a book about um, some missionaries to Nigeria. Uh, And uh, there are four of them. They were in a remote part of Nigeria when they were kidnapped. And they were held for ransom. It's a great book to read. I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, One of the four was shot, was killed, and the other three feared for their lives. Yet even as they were being held, they knew they needed to forgive their captors in the light of these verses. And as they determined in their hearts to obey Jesus' command to forgive them, their hearts started to change. This is what they say. We moved beyond acting out of pure obedience to his word in forgiving these people to a place where he had actually changed our hearts. We began to see the men as he saw them. Jesus Christ in us was loving these men through us and we experienced a deep compassion for them. 
And then a little later, they say this. We were simply not capable of this. We simply surrendered to God to do this. And he poured out his grace through us so that it was nothing of ourselves. Maybe there are people you're struggling to forgive. Maybe you feel you can't. Start at the beginning of the Beatitudes. Express to God your poverty, but also express to God your struggle to forgive and ask him to change you. I'm going to give us a few moments now. We're going to have a little pause. uh, For if you want to respond to God about this in your own heart, just a few moments of quiet. go on to the next of the Beatitudes. The first outflowing of the way to approach God is to be merciful. The next thing is to be pure in heart. And we'll spend a little less time on this one. What does this mean? Well, it can't mean being perfect. We might think that. It's a blessed are the pure in heart. That sounds maybe like that's being perfect. But we know that can't be what it is. After all, we've said several times, the second of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn. That is, we've got to see the sin in our hearts. We've got to, first off, be poor in heart, in spirit, uh, mourn for our sin. Therefore, it can't be being perfect. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, we need to piece it together a bit. Uh, The Old Testament helps us. We looked at this verse in previous sermons in the Beatitudes, Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So what is a pure heart according to Psalm 24? It is not trusting in an idol, uh, not swearing by a false god. It's not idolatry. Now, it's worth us remembering in Israel's history that um, uh, they had quite a history of idolatry, of worshipping other gods. But it was rare for Israel to say, well, we'll just forget about the Lord God and we'll start worshipping other gods. Generally, they they worshipped the Lord and then decided to add in other gods, which was wrong. It was a bad thing to do. But David is saying... Uh, that the person with clean hands and a pure heart doesn't do that. They are only worshipping the Lord. And therefore, it's been said, this pure in heart is about being unmixed, single, single-minded towards God. Now, we might say, well, I'm not tempted to worship other gods, so uh, I think I'm all right there on that. But there are other ways for us to be inconsistent, to be double-minded. In fact, in the New Testament, um, in the book of James, uh, it picks up particularly... Let's not go for that quote quite yet. We'll go for that in a minute. I'll tell you when. Um, In the book of James, uh, this is a strong theme that runs through the letter. Early on, he talks about those who are double-minded. And he comes back to it later in the letter. 
and actually gives several examples of ways we as Christians uh, might actually show we lack consistency. We don't have this single-mindedness. We're double-minded. Here are a few of them. I'm just going to list them for you. Uh, That we might listen to the word of God, but not put it into practice. That's being double-minded. So we hear it read and preached on a Sunday. We read it on our own in our quiet times, but it makes no impact on our lives. Or we claim to have faith, but don't live it out in good deeds. That's one in James. Or we praise God with our tongues, but then at another time we curse people, we badmouth people. That's being double-minded. He says that on a Sunday you sing God's praises, but then later in the day or on a Monday you're slandering other people or speaking badly of them. That's being double-minded. Or what he calls friendship with the world. He says, don't you know friendship with the world is enmity against God? So we might claim to be Christians on Sunday or in our home group, but then the rest of the time we're living a very worldly life. Do you see each of those is being double-minded? It is being inconsistent. It is, in some ways, idolatry. Trying to worship the Lord, but also worship other things. To put it another way, you can imagine your life as a pie. I don't want to make you too hungry, but you can imagine your life as a pie with different segments to it. Or a pizza, if you know. No, go with the pie, otherwise it wrecks my analogy later on. Sorry, I shouldn't have said pizza. Go with the pie. Imagine your life as a pie, and there are different segments to it. So you've got home life. Maybe relationship with your spouse, relationship with family. You've got uh, relationship with uh, neighbours. You've got your work life. You've got uh, what you watch, uh, what you do in your spare time. You know, you've got different segments to your life, different sections of the pie. Where does God fit into this? Is there a God segment of your pie? If there's a God segment of your pie, that is probably meaning you're being double-minded. Because if God is just a segment, that means he's not in the other bits. To be single-minded is for God to be the filling in the pie. That's where the pizza falls apart, maybe. But God has to be the filling in the pie. That is, he is in every part of your life. Whichever bit, God is in there, shaping the way that you are. That is to be single-minded, to be pure in heart, to be holy for God. So how do we deal with this if actually we see we're not pure in heart, if we're convicted of this? In the book of James, uh, he gives various ways of being double-minded, and then he says in chapter 4, now we'll go for that quote. Notice, this is how he says you're to deal with it. If you're convicted of this, you say, you know, I... I do just have a God segment. I I need God to fill my whole life. This is what he says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you notice there, he doesn't just say, well, try harder, do better. He actually says to approach God again. And actually the language there is very similar to the start of the Beatitudes, isn't it? It's about mourning. 
grieving, wailing. It's coming before God humbly. And he says, God will lift you up. That is God's grace. That's God's filling of us. That is how James says to do it. To approach God again in that way and ask him to change you. And what's the promise in the Beatitudes? We should just address that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that again, as we've heard before, is a now and a not yet. We see God and his glory as we look to Jesus and see him and see uh, God's glory in him. A God-given insight into who Jesus is. That we're not just reading of another person, but of God himself. Our blind eyes opened. And yet there is a not yet as well. Paul says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. We shall see God one day when our hearts are fully changed. With thoughts and desires and emotions all perfected, we shall see God. We shall meet Jesus. So, there we are, two ways in which God changes us, in which the Christian life is a changed life. That we are to be merciful and to be pure in heart. 